right, well, well, thank you, Pastor Scott, and um, all of the elders for this opportunity. Just as Pastor Scott mentioned, I, I am humbled to be able to stand here in this pulpit. I, I can't even begin to tell you how surreal uh, this, this really is to step into this place that, uh, that uh, my earthly father um, considered his favorite location. Right, to stand up here and proclaim the word of God to you. And it is very humbling and it is very encouraging. And, and as I've had a chance to talk with some of you tonight, and as I am looking around, I'm seeing some faces I haven't gotten into contact with this trip. But as I look around, I see, um, I see men and women that, that I have learned from. People that, uh, that have loved me and, and my wife and my kids really the better part of my life. And, uh, and, and so I feel a little bit tonight like a, like a student that's going back to the university and now has to address his professors. So that's what it feels like to be honest with you. I have felt the weight of that uh, because to me this room really is, this room is full of professors. Uh, all of you, the very people that have, have taught me um, through very uh, integral times in my life who God is. Uh, many of you have, have really shown me and taught me what the church is and, and what it's to be. Um, and, and so uh, I'm just overwhelmed by the, by the opportunity to be able to stand here and open God's word. And, and, uh, and I will admit it, it, it did take me a little bit to realize um, what I had when I was here. Um, took a little bit of getting away and a little bit of maturing and a little bit of time. So thank you for bearing with me over those years. Um, but once I realized um, what, I, what this place was, once I realized uh, what we have here at Riverbend, uh, I realized this is home. This is family. You're my family. And, um, and, and so I'm so grateful to, to just be opened, uh, coming back with open arms here today. And I owe a debt of gratitude to you that, that uh, I could never repay. Um, just know that me and Erica and my four kids are eternally grateful for you, um, all of you here at Riverbend. Uh, the, the lines, just as Dad used to say, the lines have truly fallen in pleasant places for us. Um, and I look back at with with fond memories of all of that um, here. Uh, there are also, as I've noticed, a few new faces um, in the building. Every time I come back, it seems like an entirely new set of people that, uh, that I don't know, and, and so you don't know me, and that's, that's a great thing. It means that God is still at work here, right? Um, but you don't know me, and, and, and just as Pastor, Pastor Scott just said, it's because me and my family, we moved away from here a little over six years ago, and we moved to Jonesboro, Arkansas. Um, and, and I have to admit, we, we kind of foolishly moved uh, there thinking that we were bound to find another church home like this. And I don't know if many of, many of you may be aware, but there's not a lot of these out there. Um, there is not a lot of river bends out there that are available. And we thought that we would be able to um, find another one. But what we found was that even though this place that we had moved to, Jonesboro, um, as a matter of fact, it's actually referred to as the city of churches. Because those of you that have visited, you know what I'm talking about. In Jonesboro, there on every corner is a church, a bank, and a fast food restaurant. And so you throw a rock any direction, you're hitting a church window. And so we thought for sure we're going to be able to find that. But um, there's literally hundreds of churches. And, and, and because of that, there's this heightened um, awareness of morality. There is a, a high level of moralism in a form of godliness in that community. But if you look closely, you start to see the cracks. And you begin to see that it's a form of godliness denying its power. And that's all it is, is moralism. And, and most of the churches that are in this community, what we found were, were a works-based righteousness. Um, a, a people that, that were a do better, do more, be good. And, and really the, kind of the motto for the community is, is don't drink, don't cuss, and don't smoke because Jesus loves you. And that's essentially the mindset of this community, even though there are so many churches. Now, thankfully, there are a few churches there where the gospel is still intact. But, but uh, most of those churches that are there, um, they're, they're riddled with pragmatism um, and very shallow theology. 
um, even though we have some good relationships with some of them and we want to continue to build those relationships. But I just wanted to give you a picture of what it is that, that we are coming into and where we're at um, there in Jonesboro, Arkansas, so you can continue to pray for us, just as I know you all have. Um, and, and as we've been able to build some relationships there in, in Jonesboro uh, over the first couple of years of being there, we began to see that there are a lot of believers. You know, there's saints everywhere. There's saints from every tribe, nation, and tongue, right? And so there are believers that are there in a lot of these churches. And we began to see that these believers were hungry for the word of God. You know what that feels like. Some of you have, have maybe recently found a place like this where you have just searched and looked and wanted to find somewhere where you're going to be fed the truth of God's word. And, and so we found people like that. And what we see that they're doing is they're, they're supplementing their Christian life. They're listening to a lot of podcasts. Uh, they, they watch a lot of sermons on YouTube. Um, as a matter of fact, a big thing that a lot of them do is they start Bible studies in their homes where there's eight or nine, ten different churches represented. And that's where they're trying to dig into God's word. But one thing that we noticed that was across the board was the fact that all of these things, these supplemental things, were outside of the context of the local church. And that was the community that we had found ourselves in, hoping that we are going to find a place like this, where we're going to be able to be fed and grow in the knowledge of the Lord. But this was the dynamic of where we landed with our family and God had a purpose for it. And this is precisely what led us through talking with Pastor Scott. And he's been so tremendously helpful. All the elders have been so helpful in kind of leading us to this. This is why we planted 12-5 Church there in Jonesboro. And the desire was to provide a place where the saints can be equipped, where saints can be equipped for the good work. We, I spent so many years here taking that for granted. Um, and, and I look back and I feel as though I squandered a few years there uh, by not taking advantage of what God had provided. But that's why we decided to do it. And so what we did was we started there in the living room after much prayer and, and conversations with, with Pastor Scott and the elders and some other men. We decided, okay, we're going to plant. And, and we put everything together and we started right there in our living room, just me and Erica and our four kids. And I remember looking at Erica and the kids and saying, okay, for the next two or three months, it's probably just going to be us. But we're going we're gonna to sing, we're going to pray, I'm going to open God's word, we're going to worship the Lord. And, and I, I tell you, I don't think we've had a single Sunday since that first one where it was just us. God brought three families that very first Sunday that we had no idea were coming. They just kind of showed up at our house. And so God has just continued to bring people. But we started with no money. We started with, with no people other than us. And then over these past, it's been almost two years now, God has been bringing people. And he's been bringing his people. Not the people that we thought may come. It's been totally different ones. It's the ones that he had planned and he had purposed. And people who realized that they were starving, they wanted truth. That's what they desired. And so now, um, as of this past Sunday, uh, we have 26 families represented at 12-5 Church. And this has been a tremendous blessing. And, and God is, is just proving to us over and over again through that entire process, he's the one building this church. It's nothing that we're doing. We're seeking to be obedient. And I want all of you to know that y'all have played a part in, in this work that God has been doing um, there. As a matter of fact, every one of those families sends their gratitude. Um, we speak of Riverbend often there. Um, sends their gratitude. And as a matter of fact, a handful of them actually wanted to say thank you to, to you in person. So they filmed some videos and we put them up. Uh, Troy, could you pull that video up? I want, I want you to see some faces of some people that y'all's ministering to us has impacted. Hi, I'm Blake. And I'm Miriam. And we just wanted to say thank you for your support to 12.5. We're so blessed that the Lord has provided such a biblical church in this area for our family through y'all's support. Thank y'all so much. Hi, Riverbend. We're the 80s. We'd like to thank you for all your prayers and support. And we feel very fortunate to have a church like 12.5 and to be under the leadership of men like Nathan Jeremiah. Hi, we're Spencer and Angela Trinari, and we just wanted to thank Riverbend for their continual support of our church home, 12-5. 12-5 has been an incredible place for us to come and have community as we've entered into marriage this last year. Thank y'all. 
Hi, I'm Chris. This is my wife, Jahida, my son, Luke, and my daughter, Sophia. We are the Hinnick family. We would like to express our gratitude to Riverbend Church for your continued kindness, support, and prayers. Truly, your efforts are making 12-5 Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas a reality. Thank you! Hey Riverbend, we're the Bowers family. I'm Marcus. I'm Meredith. I'm Kayla. I'm Emma. And we just want to thank you guys so much for supporting our church here at 12.5. We are so blessed to have this church and we can't thank you guys enough. Hello Riverbend, my name is Adam. I'm Tori. We are the Carmichaels. We attend church there at 12.5 here in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And we just wanted to say thank you for your support. Hello, my name is Keith Hennick and I want to thank Riverbend so much for the support that you've given 12.5 Church. We joined 12.5 Church several years ago and we've had an experience unlike any other church that we've been to. The fellowship that we have, the doctrine and the scripture that is taught, the discussions that, that go on concerning the truth is just amazing. I mean, we have at every function people come early and then they stay late. They don't want to go home. They just want to love on each other. That's true. So anyways, we're so appreciative and thank you very much. Hey, this is Jeremiah and Allie Nortier with 12.5 Church. We just want to thank y'all so much, Riverbend family, for y'all's love and support. We can feel it even though we're hundreds of miles away from y'all. Look forward to seeing y'all soon. God bless. So you can hear and sense in their faces and in their voices their great love for you. And that is because y'all have been faithful to, uh, to come alongside us. So thank you for that. Um, so one of the effects of being in a culture that holds so tightly uh, to Christian morality with, without a firm grasp of the gospel um, it, is that it fosters, it really, it really kind of uh, has this heightened or deep-rooted uh, legalism. And that's what we deal with because in Northeast Arkansas, there where we're at, one of the ways that this has manifested itself is through blurring the lines between political and social conservatism and the church. And you can see it working out because many of, of these uh, unregenerate people are making their way into the church. They find themselves comfortable within this plethora of churches that is there in the community. And they find themselves comfortable usually because, um, you know, if you listen in, a lot of times you know those churches where the sermon sounds more like a a Fox News pundit with a scripture verse than it does a sermon. And so they find themselves within that culture there. So many of them, if not uh, most of these churches, you find are primarily goats, not sheep. They're primarily unregenerate, not regenerate people within these churches. And this has served to lead many of the saints in, in that area uh, to be really misguided or confused about what the role of Christ church is. They're not sure what this is. And the reason is, is, is because um, we uh, they, they've, they've conflated the, the role of Christ bride with the powers and the entities of this world. And so we as a church, we decided uh, recently, I say recently, we've been in it for 11 months. We decided to go through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so we've been walking through to be able to see what it is that Jesus says his believers are and the church is to be. And so we see there at the beginning, that's the passage we're going to be in today is Matthew 5, 13 primarily. But we see at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the first 12 verses of chapter 5 in Matthew are referred to as the Beatitudes, where Jesus is introducing a, a mind-blowing, kind of countercultural, worldview-flipping portrait of what God's chosen people are, completely different from what the world sees as power. Because he says there in those first 12 verses, if you were to look at through those, he says, he says that my people, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those that mourn, 
those that are meek, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, those that are merciful and pure in heart, the ones that are peacemakers, those that are persecuted. And you got to remember, this is the opposite of what the, the people that are standing there listening to Jesus speak these words, the, these, this Jewish culture. This is the opposite of what they thought the Messiah was coming to bring about, isn't it? They thought that the Messiah would come in like an earthly king and he was going to rule like an earthly king and they were going to rule right alongside with him. They literally thought that instead of being poor in spirit, that they would be rich, that they would have an abundance and they, and they would experience the abundance of this life and everything that it has to offer, at least from their worldview. Instead of mourning, they thought they would be rejoicing. Instead of meek, they thought that they would be the mighty. Instead of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, they thought that they would have an abundance, didn't they? This is how they thought that the Messiah was going to come about. Instead of being merciful, they would be merciless. Instead of peacemakers, they would be the peacekeepers. They would rule with him. And, uh, and of course, they wouldn't be persecuted in their minds. The persecution was going to end. That they themselves would essentially become the persecutors. They were going to bring about an earthly kingdom. And this really is what all religion, what all legalism leads to, isn't it? It's a, it's a self-righteous, self-centered perspective of the kingdom of God. It's all about me, 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 I, I, I. It's what can I gain from the kingdom? What is in it for me? And do I reap benefits from this? And that's the world's perspective, which is the opposite of the kingdom of God. Especially with this picture that Jesus gives us here in the Sermon on the Mount. The kingdom of God. Anytime Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, it's very much centered on him, him, him. The holy, holy, holy. Right? This is completely different than the way they had perceived it. And here's the thing. is that If it is about him, if the whole thing is about God, then no wonder he's using this seemingly... Right? I put that in quotes, seemingly upside down approach. To the people listening to this sermon, they're thinking, blessed are those that are, that are meek. Blessed are those that are persecuted. That, that, that can't be right. That can't possibly be right. God loves us. God wants, the, God wants us to thrive in this life, right? They can't comprehend it because it's completely upside down from what the world perceives as success from power and a kingdom and I think that God does it this way. I believe God has structured it this way. Because if we're bringing anything to the table, then what are we doing? If we're bringing power, the earthly power and position, then we're bringing something for ourselves. We're, we're sharing in his glory. We're sharing. And, and if we're honest, that's essentially what every man wants, is to share in the glory that God deserves. But God said that he'll share his glory with no one. And so God uses these upside down, countercultural, worldview flipping approach to his kingdom. That's why he's chosen to use the weak and despised things of this world to confound the wise. There's not many of us that are mighty, are there? They're average people. But God uses, God uses the small things. And once we see who we are as Christians, once we see what Jesus is saying there in those Beatitudes, then the question is how are we to live in light of that? If we are to be meek, if we are persecuted, if, if, if we are to be merciful and live this countercultural life, how does this work out? How do we live? Well, Jesus makes this transition as only he can in the Sermon on the Mount. So go ahead. If you have not already opened your copy of God's Word to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Right as soon as he transitions from the Beatitudes, he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, this is the reading of God's holy inspired word. I would like to take a moment and pray that God would illuminate our hearts and minds to this truth as we dig in. 
Pray with me. Dear Only Father, Lord, we come to you now. We thank you for this opportunity. And we pray that you would be honored. Um, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us through your word. Your, your word is clear. Your word is true. And it is perfect. Uh, but sometimes in our frailty, uh, we fall short in our ability to comprehend that truth. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would illuminate our hearts and minds to it. Lord, guard me from error. Lord, work in our hearts today as we look at your great truth. In Christ's name, amen. Well, some of you probably recall back uh, just a few decades ago, the 80s and 90s, this phrase, the moral majority. It was a popular phrase during the time. And, and what this was is these were the religious, political uh, activists uh, of that time kind of running things within the government. And these were Christians and, and really entire churches that were heavily involved in pushing and supporting, really both financially and physically, really, people in power and in government. So essentially what they were doing is they were lobbying for people in political positions is what the push was. And the idea was that the majority of, of our nation, of, of America here, the majority of people, they're the quiet majority and, and they're, they're moral people. They hold to basic uh, Christian moral values and they're, they're essentially morally upright. And so if we can just take the power and enact positions in the government and within these power plays and, and, and roles within our government through political means that we can enact moral change in our culture. And so as I look back at that, as we take a look back at it, uh, just thinking through, how did that work out for us? As a matter of fact, I've got some statistics here. Here we are 30 plus years later, and I've got some statistics that may be shocking for you. Uh, uh, there's a new study out that says that, that 38% of 18 to 24-year-olds identify as LBGTQ. Now think about that for a second. That's over a third of our young people. One in three women will have an abortion. That was shocking to me. Now, I know that we're seeing some, uh, some fruit, Roe versus Wade being overturned, praise God, but it's still happening. That hasn't changed just yet. Gay marriage is legal. Mass shootings are a regular occurrence. Drugs and alcohol are wreaking havoc on our loved ones around us. Uh, it's, it's an epidemic in our community uh, methamphetamine, and it just it, it destroys lives. Human trafficking is a, a major problem. I mean, I could go on, right? We can go on all day long with this list. So I ask again, how did it work out for us? <laughs> That's sobering, isn't it? Now, I know some will say, well, well here's the thing. Uh, we were able to restrain some of it from happening faster. Maybe we restrained some of the decay and some of the influence in our culture by enacting some of these things. Who knows how bad it could have been if we had not have done that? Well, I would like to argue from God's word, from Scripture today, uh, the opposite. How good could it have been if we hadn't have done that? I know that is very countercultural, isn't it? That takes our worldview and flips it upside down completely. Now, I know that Christ will one day return. Christ will return and he will dominate. And we will, we will rule with him because he, he will make this entire creation his footstool. But we're in that already and not yet at the moment, aren't we? And so right now, as we're waiting in this already and not yet, in the midst of this, I would like to, to, to point to the word of God to show us that the Christian life is about infiltration and not domination. Because we get that backwards so often. But until Christ does return and does rule, then I, I believe that this life is to be lived by us as a salty infiltration. 
So let's look at our passage here in greater depth and see what Jesus is saying about this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, there's a number of things in this statement that I believe can be implied here. So let's look at the first one. He says, you, who is he speaking of? Who is Jesus speaking to? Believers. That's the obvious, right? I mean, that's what he's just gotten through telling us in the Beatitudes that we're the ones who will inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says in in verse 10 there in chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking to us believers. He's speaking to the church universal, not just the ones that are listening to him in that moment, but the ones that would come to know him. The us now, Christians a thousand years from now, this is who he's speaking about. He says you, and what does he say about all believers? He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, some read this and and they say, well, salt adds flavor. So that's what Jesus is saying. I've actually heard this preached before. They say, well, we should add goodness and flavor to a bland world. And that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says that we're the salt of the earth. And there may be an element of practical truth in that. There, there is a little bit of a truth in that element. But, but this is not how the original listeners would have understood this to mean. The original listeners, you see, they would have understood salt to be used primarily as a preservative. They didn't have deep freezers in their garage like we do to store their meat. And so what would they do? They would coat it in salt and they would store it in a place where it can uh, be preserved. They have to preserve the, re- the meat from rotting. So when Jesus tells them that they are salt, he's telling them, he's telling believers, us, that we're a preservative. A, a preservative of what? What are we preserving? Well, in order to understand that, I think we must understand the state of this earth. To see what Jesus is telling us about being a preservative, we have to understand the state of mankind now. Because that's what he is telling us to be a preservative of, that he's telling us that we're salt of. Well, think back at Genesis chapter 2. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 17, what what does God tell Adam there in the garden? He, He gives him one command, right? He gives him one. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, what does he say? You shall surely die. And then Paul reaffirms this in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that man? Adam. So we're just read up. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Because all men sinned. Now we see physical death entered the world. But notice Adam didn't just drop dead the moment he ate of that fruit, did he? So what else could we be talking about? Well, Paul clarifies this in Ephesians 2.1. He says, and you, he's talking to believers, isn't he? You were dead in the trespasses and sins. He's speaking He's speaking of spiritual death. Adam didn't drop dead in that very moment. Even though death had entered the world now, even though decay had entered the world at the moment that Adam had sinned, something else had happened. A spiritual death had occurred. And Scripture now speaks of mankind as a corpse, as a walking, talking, breathing corpse in a spiritual sense, doesn't it? This is, the, this is the state of man. This is the state of the earth. And what happens to a corpse? What happens to uh, uh, something that is dead? Dead flesh, it, it decays. It becomes rotten. You ever tried to throw or leave old meat in a trash can too long? It's not a stench that you forget anytime soon. I, I just encourage you to throw the trash can away. I've tried to, I've tried to clean it. It doesn't work. But that's what happens in death. It brings about a stench. It brings about a rottenness. And that's precisely what happens to this world. That's exactly what is going on. Look around us. 
Turn the TV on. Turn the news on for a moment. Just look around at the lives of your neighbors. Look around at the community that we live in. It's rotten, dead corpse all around. And the stench just comes out at you. It's all around us. Because man left to himself will at breakneck speed spiral down into this putrid stench of death deeper and deeper continuing on further into sin and wretchedness. That's what the world does. So when Jesus says that we, you, Christian, you are the salt of the earth, he is saying that we are preserving and restraining that decay. That's what the salt is doing. We're preserving it. This world is not as bad as it could be, and that's because of the grace and goodness of God And he uses the church as his means to restrain the decay that is going on around us. Also implied in this passage here is that salt is a completely different medium and substance than the meat that it is being placed on. It's altogether different. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, Therefore... If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And because it is a different substance, we are a different substance altogether. God has made us into something completely different that it has a completely different purpose now. God has given us a completely different role And our role, Jesus actually addresses here in the next phrase. Look at it. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? This, This phrase here, if salt has lost its taste, it actually reads more literally. But if salt is defiled. You hear that? But if salt is defiled. What... What he's saying is that once the salt has been defiled by the meat, once the salt has ceased to be salt, it ceases to be a preservative. It's not doing its job. It is not preserving the meat that it's tasked to preserve. It's not restraining the decay any longer. It's worthless. And these people listening to Jesus here, they would have understood that. They would have known when that, when that mineral, when that salt had lost its saltiness and they know that, oh, well, we're going to have to get rid of that. We need new salt in here because it's not going to do the job anymore. So how does that, how does that transfer over the imagery to us in our Christian life? I would say one way is when we seek to combat the world on its terms through its power, we're no longer doing our job. We've been defiled. We're not not a, a different medium. We're not a different substance anymore. All of a sudden, we're trying to do things. We're trying to be something that we're not. What do I mean by combating the world on its terms and through its power. I'm referring to fighting battles the world's way and not God's way. Because contrary to how many Christians present it, we, we in the Christian life um, are not here as crusaders. We're not here as crusaders here to force people to do what we want them to do, the way we think they should do it, proselytized by the edge of the sword. That's not what we're called to do. But that's that's the way of the world, isn't it? To force itself, to force others to think the way it thinks and use power to accomplish it. That's not what God's called us to. We're not crusaders, we're missionaries. Because the fact of the matter is that we're not battling flesh and blood, are we? This is a spiritual war that is going on. And we're called in that war to be salt and light, as Jesus says here in the Sermon on the Mount. Salt and light, not vinegar and power. And that's what the world 
does. And we oftentimes, as the church, and I can say from the area that I, we are in, that we've planted in northeast Arkansas, that's the way the church goes about things. And they've conflated these two things, and they've lost sight of what the church is to be. And this way of thinking has led us to try and force the world to live morally upright through, not the gospel, but through political means and power structures, hasn't it? We've lost sight of the gospel. We've lost sight of what actually changes a person. We've lost sight of being salt. We've lost sight of being light and we're trying to force this. We're so busy fighting and judging the world on its standards according to their playbook of success while, while holding them to a standard that they can't even achieve even if, even if they wanted to, which they don't. They cannot achieve this. It's almost like the imagery that I give them, and this is what most churches in, in, in our community are doing, is essentially we're taking these corpses out in our, in our pews, we're, we're propping up a dead corpse with a two-by-four up the back of their shirt, and then we get upset because they won't dance to the choreography that we're trying to force onto them. That's what we're doing by forcing the power of this world to try and enact change. And that's what Jesus is fighting against. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. This is countercultural. I want to show you something completely different. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Now that verse may seem out of place here, but bear with me for a moment. What's happened is, is that we're judging, we are to judge one another within the church, not the world. The world is going to act like the world. Right? Heathen's going to heave. Right? Death and decay. The world is going to act like the world. But... We must judge within. And why are we to judge within? Because we have to keep our saltiness. That's the whole purpose, to keep our saltiness. And, and guess what happens whenever we maintain that saltiness? It naturally slows down the decay. The purpose that we wanted to do in the first place. So, we should be far more concerned with misinformation and heresies within the church than misinformation out on Facebook. Well, we lose sight of that, don't we? We want to force them, force the world to be morally upright. I see far too many, uh, my brothers and sisters, overly concerned with what the world is doing wrong, yet I hear very little concern about the false teaching among us. Heresies are taught all the time from the pulpits, out on Twitter, out on social media, yet we're more concerned with what some spiritually dead politician thinks, that, that there's more than two genders. Of course he thinks there's more than two genders. He's dead. He's dead in his sins. and his tre- We cannot make him morally upright. If the church would reject false teachers and do their job at equipping the saints, then the saints would actually go out and be salt and light. If the saints would do that, which in return would actually have the power to restrain and decay the death from the culture. This is what Jesus is getting at. But what happens to us? We get distracted just like the people listening to Jesus preach this sermon. We, we long to think like the world. We long to act like the world. To, we react like the world. We, te- we, we talk like the world. We, we want to have the respect of the world. And then we wonder why everything seems to be slipping through our fingertips. The gospel isn't going forward. Well, Jesus goes on in that verse there. In 5.13, Jesus said it. He said, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. This is what the world thinks of us. This is why the world tramples all over much of the church today. It's because 
because the church is trying to play their game, but they're better at it. We're trying to do things the way the world does things, through power, through position, through politics. So what does all of this mean? How should we be living in light of this? I love what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said. He pointed out about the early church's approach to this. I want to read you a quote from from him. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The New Testament church is not identified with any nation or nations. The result is that you never find the Apostle Paul or any other apostle commenting upon the government of the Roman Empire. We never find them sending up resolutions to the imperial court to do this or not to do that. No, that is never found in the church as displayed in the New Testament. He's right. You won't find that in Scripture. But what will you find? What do we find about the New Testament church and how they approach the culture? You'll find that these few men and women, they turned the world upside down. Not through political means. Not through picketing, not through arguments, not through judgment, not through physical war, not by any means that the world can understand or comprehend. No, they did it by knowing nothing but Christ crucified. And fighting for the purity of the church through judging and loving one another in unity. That's what they did. They were being salt. This is what it means to be the salt of the earth. Is to be the church. To be a preservative to use these countercultural, upside-down, worldview-flipping approach so that God gets the glory, amen? That's what God's interested in, is His glory. And He's going to use means that are small and seemingly insignificant. But we lose sight of that. And we so often we see power and we see structures and we see these entities that seem to control the world. And we think, if we can only obtain that, then God can really work. You don't believe me? Just... Think about how often we as the church hope that somebody famous gets saved because we think that they're going to be able to make an impact. It's so hard for us not to see things from the world's perspective. We have that residue in us, but that's what Jesus is saying. No, 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 no. This is totally different. You're salt. You're a preservative. And you're going to go about it through my means. So do you know what would end things like abortion? Because it needs to end, doesn't it? What would end abortion? What would end gay marriage? What would end divorce? What is going to end human trafficking and all types of moral corruption in our culture? What's going to end it? A great awakening. The gospel. Penetrating hearts and lives. Do you know what brings about a great awakening? Have you ever seen, have you ever looked at the church history and seeing a great movement of God moving through a nation or a community. It's when God's people get on their knees and diligently plead for God to move, but then getting up and actually being salt and sharing the good news with those within their circle of influence. That small, seemingly insignificant act brings about a great movement because God then works. And so when God works and lives are changed, then what happens? Not one group. People can't look and say, oh, look at Riverbend. Look at what Riverbend accomplished in this community. Look at what 12.5 accomplished in this community. No, they look and they go, that seemingly insignificant thing brought about this change? It obviously wasn't them. It was God. Because being salt in their sphere of influence. So today you may be, we come from a farming community, so, so I have in my notes, you may be a farmer. I don't know if there's a lot of farmers in here. But uh, you may be a farmer, you may be an office worker, uh, a doctor, a nurse, uh, you may be a housewife, a pastor, you may even be a politician. Whatever, whatever area of life that God has placed you in, whatever sphere that God has placed you in, you have a circle of influence. It may be small. And that's okay. God uses the small and despised things. So within that sphere of influence, my question to us is, are you known in that circle? 
as the conservative Republican? Are you known as the progressive liberal? Are that the top person in your field? Are you known as the, the, uh, the good student? Or are you known as the poor in spirit? Mourning, meek, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking, zealous follower of Christ. Can you say, like Paul says, for me to live is Christ? All we have to do in this is look at the example we have in our wonderful, perfect Savior. We see that he did not petition the Roman government to let him go, did he? Really, all he said, as a matter of fact, was, hey, you would have no authority over me at all unless it's been given to you from above. That's all you got. That's the only thing he said in, in response to them reviling him. And then what did he do? He willingly went like a lamb to the slaughter, knowing what we should all know. No authority, no government, no power, no influence, no entity in this world can do anything that's not been granted to them by our Father. For our good and His glory, amen. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. That's salt. That's a preservative. That's the only thing that has the power to change. Not only does it have the power to preserve and, and restrain the sin and the stench of death and decay, it has the power to actually breathe life into that into that corpse. Did you? If you're in Christ today, that's exactly what happened to you. That's why Paul can say that you are a new creation because you have been brought from death to life in Christ. Let's not get distracted, Christians, by lesser things. The political power the means of this world that have, they have no real ability to enact change. Let's just be as the Apostle Paul to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And trust that God has placed you exactly where He wants you to live a life of salty infiltration for the gospel. Amen? Amen. Well, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you um, have given us everything we need for life and godliness. And Lord, I pray uh, this evening that, uh, that you would work in our hearts and minds through that word, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of it. Lord, help us not to get distracted by the lesser things of this world, all that this world has to offer, and start to conflate um, your kingdom and your purposes with what this world has uh, laid before us. But God, I pray that you would help us to be focused on the truth of your gospel, to know nothing but Christ, that we would infiltrate and preserve the stench of rottenness and death all around us in this decay and, and broken world, that you would use us in those means, Lord. I, I thank you for this opportunity tonight. Uh, in Christ's name, amen. Wow, that was great, Nathan. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful when missionaries come and 
uh, share the word of God that has been on their heart, what they've been teaching and doing. Uh, I love when missionaries come because they tell us what they need in their country. They need the gospel. This missionary came from our country. <laughs> it needs the gospel. And this is, uh, this is such a great truth. Uh, we, we sometimes, Christians, get so caught up in wanting some kind of moralistic change. And yet, church history shows us most of the governments have tried to kill Christianity. We have the answer. We have the answer to Jesus Christ. What encouragement. Thank you, uh, Nathan. We're so glad you're here. Please make your way up and greet Nathan. And Erica's here somewhere. Where are you at, Erica? There she's right down here. Um, please greet her. The kids are probably at youth or somewhere around here. Um, well, thank you. Well, just one thought on missions. One of the things that we really believe that God calls the church to do is to go to both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And so God has given us ministry here like Warm and Grace House and, of course, this ministry and the many other ministries that are around here. But he also lets us minister within uh, our own United States, finding areas where churches need to be planted. And this is the reason we start seminaries, we train men, uh, we get behind men like this that are going to preach that way in a, in a very barren area. And so uh, what a glorious thing. And yet, as I'm sitting there, I go, this is the same message uh, I just came from North Africa and heard. Uh, this is where I just came from, from Spain and other places. It, it is the universal message the, uh, of Christ. Um, and so what an encouragement. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, when, you know when, you get, when you're in my position and I get to spend so much time with our missionaries, um, I'm constantly on the phone with them, constantly talking with them. I'd love to share that with them through you. And so uh, sometimes they don't, because we're busy preaching here and discipling and doing all that, you come and you share what, what Riverbend is doing missions-wise. And that really is encouraging. So um, be encouraged. Your church is way deeply involved in missions. You may not always hear it, constant updates and all those type of things, because we focus on preaching here. We focus on discipleship and training. But this is what's going on. And it's going on all over the world with all of our missionaries. And we are very excited about what God's doing around the world. Um, our missions TV back there is updated constantly. Josh and Bobby, keep that up to date. If you want to know more, go push your finger on that thing. It turns on, and, and you can read all their newsletter. Everything's there. Um, and, and you'll see what's going on. If you want to know about missions, come talk to us elders. We'd love to tell you about those things. What a blessing. Thank you, Nathan. We're glad to have you all here, and uh, praise the Lord for each and every one of you. Have a great week. We'll see you back Sunday, Lord willing. You are dismissed.